The older I get, the scarier the world seems. When I was in the third grade, I went over to Jennifer Perkins' house, and it was my first time going over to her house, and she showed me around. She introduced me to her family. And then she leaned over and she said, my big sister is so smart. When she grows up, she's going to cure cancer. And I had this huge sense of relief. (laughs) I was so relieved to know that when I grew up, I was not going to have to worry about cancer because Jennifer Perkins' big sister was on it. Somewhere along the way, I'm, I'm not quite sure when, but my confidence faded in Jennifer Perkins' older sister. And the older I've gotten, the more frightening the world seems. When you're little, when you're little, the good guys win. And grown-ups know what they're talking about. And there's not a problem out there that the right professional can't fix. You just have to find them. And then you grow up, and the things that you thought were going to happen don't happen in the way you think they will. It's, it's, it's a bit jarring. It's disorienting. The life we imagine, it's a bit different. I had one of those jarring, disorienting moments in my young adulthood when my firstborn came. I had these these images of what being a mother would look like. And then Sam was not even 24 hours old before I was calling the nurse into my room in tears because I didn't know what I was doing. The, the, The feeding the baby, the soothing the baby, all these things that I had always thought would just come This picture I had in my head, it it wasn't there. And I think this nurse was trying to make me feel better. She made some comments. She said, Mandy, you know Sam better than anybody. You are the expert on this baby. And like I said, I think she was trying to, to bolster my confidence But I remember thinking, if I am the expert on this baby, then this kid is in trouble. (laughs) Because I don't know what I'm doing. You grow up and you realize that the good guys don't always win. That there are definitely problems out there that don't seem to have solutions. And you realize that most of the time, the adults are just making things up as they go along. The older I get, the scarier the world comes. It's jarring, disorienting. The things that you always assume you could trust are no longer trustworthy. You start realizing that the world isn't playing by some set of rules that you thought were out there, and that there is a darkness that no nightlight can fix. When you're little, you, uh, you learn your numbers, you learn your letters, your shapes. When my son Sam came home from his first day of preschool, he was, he was troubled. You could see it in his face. And I asked him what was wrong, and he finally said, 
My teacher doesn't know her shapes. <laughs> and I said, oh, oh, really? He said, yeah, she, she keeps asking me, where's the circle? Can you find the square? Point to the triangle. <laughs> we learn our numbers, our letters, our shapes, our, our colors. You know, the color red is simple. Yellow, simple. Black, simple. And then you grow up and you go to one of Rod Crossman's classes. <laughs> and you realize there is no such thing as a simple color. <laughs> you look at the color black, and all of a sudden you see it differently. You start to notice that there are, there's hints of, of purple or, or green or blue in this one. There's no simple black. And then you get even older and someone introduces you to Vanta Black. Vanta Black is the darkest substance that we have created here on Earth. It's a, it's a paint, a color, a material. There it is right there. And uh, so there you've got normal black there, then you've got Vanta Black. It absorbs 99.965% of light. Go ahead and go to the next one here. This is Vanta Black painted on crumpled up aluminum foil. It just, it, it looks like nothing. It's almost disorienting, like, like you are falling into that hole. One more picture here. The exact same statue, but one is covered in Vanta Black. It is a darkness that you cannot fathom. It is, it is dizzying. Thanks for putting those up there. One of the scary things about this world is that you can think you have a horrible experience of suffering and then something happens and it gets worse. You've heard of these dark nights of the soul, these, these periods of intense suffering where our, our normal channels of communicating with God seem to be cut off. You experience the dark night of the soul, and then something happens, and you have a vanta black dark night of the soul. And all the suffering that had come beforehand <laughs> pales in comparison to what you've got here. And one of the things that's so frightening about this is that you know that it could get darker. <laughs> That even though you are in this place of immense suffering, there's no quota on pain. It's not like you can say, okay, <laughs> I've paid my dues, I've reached my quota, nothing else can happen. We've checked that box off. One of the scary things about being in suffering is that you're keenly aware that something could happen tomorrow <laughs> that could make things worse. You are not in control. That tomorrow, someone could come up with Vanta Black 2.0. And suddenly you've got something that absorbs 99.97% of light. There is a darkness that is so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face, much less God. The older I get, the scarier the world seems, because in those Vanta Black moments, not only can you not see God, the snippets, the whispers that you get of God don't seem to be all that good. 
In fact, they seem to be the opposite of God. There is the God that I thought that I know, and then the God that seemed to show up. And I'm not sure how I feel about this God here in Vanta Black territory. We see this kind of disillusionment, this kind of fear in Psalm 77. You heard it just a few moments ago. It's, it's a psalm of, of Asaph. And we don't know the circumstances behind this psalm. We don't know what kind of story is going on, what's going on in his life. But, but when you read these words, you get the impression that the psalmist used to have a very close relationship with God. The psalmist used to have the kind of relationship with God that was full of kindness and compassion and promises kept. And then something happens, we don't know what, and all of that seems to go out of the window, and God now appears to be the opposite of what God was before. Listen to these words again. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 77. I cry out to God, yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long, I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. You don't let me sleep. I am too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days long since ended when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I search my soul and ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. The word of the Lord. My kids, like many of yours, started school this week. If one of my kids came home from school and started describing a friend this way, a friend who had forgotten to be kind, whose promises had turned to curses, who had slammed the door on their compassion, I would tell my kids they need a new friend, <laughs> that, that this person is not a friend. They do not have your best interests at heart. And yet here we are, talking about God. You can hear the, the pain and the trauma in the psalmist's words. His words are all jumbled up. His tenses are all different. Sometimes he's in the past tense and then he's in the present tense. Sometimes he's talking to God and then he's talking about God and then to again and then about again. At the start, he's saying that he is up all night praying, and then a moment later, he's saying, I'm too distressed to pray. It's all jumbled up. 
This is what trauma looks like, by the way. This is, this is evidence of intense suffering. When someone goes through some kind of Vansa Black experience like this, oftentimes they can't even tell a cohesive narrative. They try to explain what's going on, and, and it comes in fragments and snippets, and it's all over the place. And they can't quite put language to their experience. So what do you do when you reach Vanta Black and you don't recognize the God you thought you knew? One of the reasons why I love this psalm is because the psalmist tells us exactly what to do. He shows us. You let God have it. I like this psalmist because he gives us permission to say things about God, to say things to God that I'm not quite sure we're even allowed to say. Because even though these words are jumbled, these are fighting words. These are angry words, accusatory words, finger-pointing you, you, you words. The psalmist isn't holding anything back. We have have a lot of examples in the Bible of how people respond to suffering. Lots of testimonies we can read that people use. Uh, Wonderful testimonies, the all things work together for good for those who love him. I've used these testimonies myself, beautiful verses. Or, Or you look at Joseph's testimony from the Old Testament, where he says, you intended these things for evil, but God intended them for good. But Joseph's testimony isn't the only way to respond. Joseph's words are not more biblical than Mary and Martha's who say to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Paul's words of, I consider these present sufferings as nothing compared to the glory that is to come. Those words are not more biblical than the disciples saying, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? And Esther's courageous declaration of, If I perish, I perish, is certainly not more biblical than, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 77 reminds us that we are free to let God have it. About 10 years ago, I found myself in a Vanta Black experience. I had a dark night of the soul that made everything else just pale in comparison that had happened beforehand. And about two months into it, a dear friend called me up and asked how I was doing. I said, not well and proceeded to spew out all of the things that were going on. And at the end of this, she paused and she said, it sounds like Jesus is asleep on your boat. That was exactly what I needed to hear. I didn't need to hear about Jesus calming the storm. That's not where I was at. 
I was not at the end of that story yet. I was still in the middle. And, and honestly, I didn't know what to do with God at that time because it seemed like God was responsible for the suffering. And, and even if he wasn't, he surely wasn't doing anything to stop it. And she gave me almost this theological waiting room where I could put God. <laughs> I'm in the middle of the story, and I don't have to figure out whether or not I believe this God, whether or not I trust this God, I, because he's asleep. Not only that, he's got his head on a pillow. It's like he's mocking me here. So any anger I have seems justified. What my friend did there was gave me a gift to pay attention to the middle of the story, to press pause before pushing me to the end. And there's something powerful about not finishing a Bible story, something powerful when you are in pain about not rushing to the end, but about lingering there in the middle. So when you're reading these stories, when you are in pain, pause. Hang out there for a little bit. Linger in the middle of the story. Don't, don't look at when Joseph is in the second in command in Egypt. Go to Joseph at the bottom of that pit. Don't see Daniel as advisor to the king. See him in the lion's den. Don't see Ruth with her husband Boaz and their child. See her hungry on the edge of the field, anxious, wondering whether or not she should step foot in the field. And don't see Lazarus walking out of the grave, not yet, at least. See him there in the tomb with his sisters, his friends. And while you're there, pay attention to what Jesus is doing. Jesus, who, who comes to the tomb with the very intention of raising Lazarus from the dead, he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that everyone's going to be really, really happy in just a few moments. But he pauses there in the middle, and he weeps. My parents came for a visit earlier this week, and on Friday, we were talking about Psalm 77 and this sermon in particular. And, and I made the comment, I said, I, I don't know that there's a whole lot of good news in this sermon. I, I think it's just going to be all depressing and, and, and sad. And my dad jumped in right away and he said, I, I don't see it that way. He said, I think, I think it is good news that God welcomes this kind of emotion, this, these accusations. God wants you, the, the real you, not some, not some emotionally sanitized you. In Psalm 145, we read that the Lord is close to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And so we're just going to pause for just 60 seconds here. We're going to look at this psalmist as our example. And in these 60 seconds, simply tell God what is on your heart, the good, the bad, the ugly, the boring. <laughs> Come before the Lord in truth here for 60 seconds. 
and tell God what it is you are carrying. So what do you do when present circumstances lead you to a place where you're not sure you can trust God? Psalm 77 tells us that, first of all, we bear our soul to the Lord. You tell God exactly what it is like to be in the middle of the story. You give the unsanitized truth. But that's not all you do. I read to you the first 10 verses. I'm going to read the second half. I'll read the whole thing again here. But once I get to verse 11, pay attention to the shift that the psalmist makes. I cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long, I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. You don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days long since ended when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I search my soul and ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. Verse 11. But then I recall all you have done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. Oh God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? You are the God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations. By your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When the Red Sea saw you, O Lord, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. The clouds poured down rain. The thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind. 
The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your road led through the sea. Your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. You led your people along that road like a flock of sheep, with Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. The word of the Lord. This first half is all about what you do in the present. This second half then pushes us to the past. We can't, we can't live in these first 10 verses all the time because, because grief is work. It takes energy. It's overwhelming. You get stuck in these first 10 verses and you are destroyed by despair. But I love what the psalmist does here. I find it very interesting that he doesn't start talking about what God has done in the recent past. He's not talking about what God did last week or last year. I I almost wonder if the psalmist is looking at his life and is in such a state where he's going, I can't think of anything good right now in my life. I I can't even bring to mind those times when God has been present. So I'm going to go way back. (laughs) I'm going to go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and testify to something that God did for somebody else. I'm going to have a vicarious testimony because even though God does not seem like he's present in my life now, I believe that he was present then and that that is the character of God. Are you in a similar space where it's too too painful to even ask where God is present too painful to remember the times when God has been faithful. Is there perhaps a passage of scripture that you can look to? Without looking at your own life, is there something you can point to and hear where you say, this is the God that I believe in? The God that makes unseen paths through seas when the enemy is present. A God that does call forth dead from the tomb. A God who can heal with a touch. Take another 60 seconds and think back through what you know about Scripture and see if there is a story, an image, something that God does that you can point to to remind you who God is and what he has done in the past. Take just a moment now.
Psalm 77. Again, the first half is all about the present. Where are you at right now? (laughs) The second half is about the past. What has God done in the past? And then the psalm ends. There's nothing about the future. Nothing about what you do now. The psalmist doesn't go there. There's no no instructions. And, And for some of you here, that's enough. You can barely get through this very moment. Even thinking about the future is too overwhelming. But for the rest of us, even though we just get the, the present and the past here, we can see hints of the future if we read between the lines. So number one, we acknowledge the present pain. Number two, we remember what God has done in the past. And number three, as far as the future is concerned, and I've, I've tried to find an eloquent way to put this, a, a memorable way to, and I'm at a loss. So let me just say, number three, as far as the future is concerned, just hang on a little bit longer. Just hold on. Just wait. Just take one breath and then choose to take another breath. Every Bible story we've looked at this morning has this element of waiting, of being still. You cry out before the Lord, you remember what he's done, and then you wait for him to act. So Daniel waits for that door to the lion's den to open. Joseph waits to be released from prison. And, and I've got a hunch that for Mary and Martha, the amount of time between Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus actually coming forth, I imagine that felt like an eternity for them. Psalm 77 directs our attention back to Moses in the Red Sea. It directs us to Exodus 14, and so we're going to pause and read that and see how this plays out here. Moses has just led the Israelites out of slavery. They have left Egypt, and then God has them turn around. God has them backtrack They backtrack and they set up camp at a place that they should have left long ago, that they had already passed by. And then the Egyptians come. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just be still and watch the Lord rescue you today. 
The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord himself will fight for you. You need only to be still. Mandy, those words were written for the Israelites thousands of years ago. Those words weren't written for me. But if you want to see how someone is going to act in the future, see how they've acted in the past. God is faithful to God's self, and the way that God acts in the past is the way that God will act in the future. Even now, God is preparing a road through the sea, a pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway we cannot even dream of right now. The Lord rescuing you is not dependent on the strength of your faith. God will fight, and God's last enemy to be destroyed is death. He has removed death's sting, but death's reign is not yet fully defeated. That's in the future. We need only be still. The Lord will fight for us. One more moment of silence, one more minute here. Here, we're not trying to think anything or figure anything out. Just be still and quiet before the Lord in this moment. The Apostle Paul writes, Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come, when Christ will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And may the Lord haste that day when our faith will be sight, when the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll, the trump will resound and the Lord shall descend. Even then, it is well with our soul.